It's Monday, November 20th, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A lot going on in the world these days. War, well, wars, Ukraine, Israel. Actually, a third one, Sudan. We forget about that one. There's a uh, quasi-war. Let's call it a skirmish, near a skirmish. Mark Wayne Mullen and the head of the Teamsters. That's true. Plus, we've got Biden meeting Xi. But, of course, all the coverage redounds to pandas. The comments from Xi on the pandas was a little squishy, too. Even suggesting that America may get more pandas. Some are holding out hope for a new panda deal. I like the fact that Xi Jinping was pandering and he's going to send a few pandas to the United States. Am I the only one who was surprised that the presidents of the two biggest economies in the world met and everyone's just like, what's up with the pandas? (laughs) I mean, like, I get it. I'm hot. I'm smart. I'm alluringly asexual. But there have to be bigger issues, right? Uh, Not tonight. And it's always in the same place in the newscast or in the report. Yes, she met with Biden and there's terrible military implications for what if these two superpowers were to get crosswise in the Straits of Taiwan and intellectual properties. But pandas, I ask you. Is there any equivalent version that would work the other way? The cute, substance-free American product that the Chinese government would allow its people to get all gaga over, including Lady Gaga? And if it's not pandas, it's TikTok, which is essentially, I don't know, that was going to be the name of the next panda that they lent us or would if we promised not to defend Taiwan too hard. I'm not saying we're not a serious country, but we're serious up to the point of I would love to throw some distractions at the Chinese. Hey, we're Americans. Have a possum. What about possums? Get into possums. And you got TikTok? Well, we got fidget spinners. Okay, most of them were made in China. I'm just saying that while I love pandas as much as the next guy, as long as the next guy is someone who is more or less indifferent to pandas, I think we may be taking our eye off the ball. On the show today, it is a rather long spiel, and I promise I will stop bludgeoning Al-Shifa Hospital, unlike, say, the IDF. But there has been, I think, just a lack of acknowledgement that new evidence has come to light that much of the claims made by the Israelis are, if not proving out, gaining more credence. Let's acknowledge that, no? Well, if you say no, skip the spiel and go right to my interview with Lee McIntyre, research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. He lectures in ethics at Harvard. He's out with a new book called On Disinformation. The whole idea of disinformation sometimes uh, gets my goat, gets stuck in my craw. So we will discuss it. We'll discuss how disinformation differs from lying and how news programs should go about booking guests, especially ones who have lied repeatedly. Lee McIntyre, up next. The problem of misinformation and disinformation has always been with us, but in 2023, it is now a matter more of degree than of kind. The amount of information pushed at us that we are forced to slosh through makes it very hard to discern the real from the fake. That is the problem of misinformation. The problem with disinformation, I find, is defining it. And once we've defined it, to figure out cures that are not worse than the disease or that will not exacerbate the disease. So joining me now is Lee McIntyre. 
He is author of A Small Book That Fits in Your Back Pocket on Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. He's a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. Lee McIntyre, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me on. How's disinformation different from a lie? Disinformation is a lie. I mean, uh, the, the distinction to mark is the one that you marked between misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is an accident. You know, maybe you believe something uh, that isn't true, but, uh, you know, it, it wasn't intentional. But disinformation has a lie behind it. There's somebody who created that disinformation for a purpose, and it's usually a purpose that serves them and not the, uh, you know, the victim who believes it. But a lie is, I mean, most definitions of lie rely on the, that that is a consciously uh, stated mistruth. It can't be a mistake. It And this is in legal terms. It's sometimes hard to prove a lie because you can't know if it was a mistake or a lie. So again, is it a specific type of lie? Is it a lie based on that has more of a political valence? Why isn't it just thinking about lies? You raise a good point. I mean, uh, I suppose it's just a difference in uh, in volume, right? If you tell, if you talk to one person, it's a lie. If you you know put something out on Twitter and it reaches millions, then that's disinformation. I guess that's how you could think of it. Same problem with intent, though that you that you talked about. And I think this is why so many journalists don't use the word disinformation, though they should. There are countless instances that I see when. They will use the term misinformation instead of disinformation, because the minute you say it's disinformation, then the bar goes up. Then you, you know. Then you have to. Well, if it's a lie, then there has to be a liar, so you have to talk about it. So it's safer to use the euphemism, but I think that's a problem. Yeah. Well, most journalists are also uh, averse to flat out calling things lies. It's just easy, based on at at you could do a litmus test. You could fairly easily assess with some things, not easily, but with some things, is it true or is it false? If it's false, then we don't have to get into why it was perpetrated or why it was false. So you just avoid lie and you say, you know, demonstrably untrue or his unproven statements. Yeah. I I mean, I remember this during the Trump presidency, how many different uh, uh, words are there for lie? You know, for a while there, nobody would say it. They would say he was mendacious, you know, uh, uh, dissimulation. Uh, I I mean, it was crazy. But then somebody finally crossed that Rubicon, said, use the word lie, and then began to talk about it. And I think that it's important to face up to that, you know, where it's possible, where, where you can't, where you have to be restrained and careful and you don't want to get sued. You don't say that. But where you can, I think it's important to identify a lie as a lie or to identify disinformation as disinformation, because then it empowers you to fight back. Uh, misinformation is like a natural disaster. You know, it's scary, but put your head down. There's nothing you can do. But disinformation, since there's intent behind it, it's more like a war. And once you realize you're in a war, then you can fight back. How, once the seal was broken on calling Trump's lies lies and the Washington Post chronicling 30,000 of them, although other fact-checking organizations like CNN chronicle 10,000 less, so that brings up one man's disinformation might not be another person's. But once the seal was broken, did that really do anything beyond the psyche of the MSNBC crowd who was unaligned against <laughs> Trump anyway? It it does, because I think that one of the best ways to fight back against disinformation is to tell the truth. And even if, um, and, and also to repeat the truth. I mean, you notice that one thing that Trump 
does a lot is not just lie, but repeat the lie over and over. And you might wonder why he does that. It's just because he understands in a sort of a feral way, I'm not sure he's ever studied it, that there's the repetition effect. It's a cognitive bias in, uh, in the human brain. And when we hear something over and over, we tend to believe it's true. So why not use that for truth? I mean, why not? And why not sit when something's a lie, say that it's a lie? It, it does us no favor to use the euphemism. When you talk about the things that we should be doing, you know, being truthful and calling it out is true. But I hinted at the fact that if you call it out too much, sometimes you're playing into the propagandist's hand or allowing the propagandist to dictate your agenda. But you have a couple of uh, cures in your book that go beyond the normal ways of doing journalism. And I'll concede that if in the normal framework of journalism, a journalist always thinks you should always present both sides, which I think is a notion that we've long since discarded. That's not a good way to counter disinformation, to always allow 50% of your uh, pages or broadcast to be someone who may be lying. Absolutely, that's true, but I don't think that's done anymore. But you go further and you talk about, for instance, no media should platform election deniers, right? Uh, th yeah, this is not something that I <laughs> that I invented. This is something that I that I applaud, which is that um, I remember. I, I think um, you know Soledad O'Brien is the uh, the loudest voice on this right now, and you know she's got a very simple slogan: uh, "Stop booking liars on your program." I mean, to give to this is the problem with this information. It's useless unless it's amplified. But once you amplify a lie, once you give a platform to a liar, then it's simply going to uh, infect certain people with the lie. And so the simplest thing to do is not to allow a platform. Now, I understand that, uh, you know, as journalists, you, you sometimes ha have to allow the platform. But I think here of the difference between just, you know, letting someone spread their propaganda versus challenging them. I think back to Jonathan Swan's interview of Trump, where he you know, was ready. He was prepared and, and would challenge and wouldn't let him get away with just the fire hose of falsehood, but would, uh, you know, would challenge him. So, you know, there there are ways to handle it. Uh, George Lakoff, the psychologist, um, has uh, something called the truth sandwich. You know, if you're going to present something false, do it within a context, uh, you know, the, the bun of truth, the sandwich. And if you're going to have a liar in your program, be prepared to challenge them. Yep. Jonathan Swan was cited approvingly after Caitlin Collins uh, did a pretty disastrous town hall interview where that there was no truth sandwich, or maybe it was an open face sandwich. Um, <laughs> same thing with Chris, Kristen Welker of MSNBC. But if Jonathan Swan did it well, that contradicts Soledad, Soledad O'Brien. You did book the liar. You just held him accountable as best you could. I, You know what? You raise a good point. If if they were all like Jonathan Swan, uh, may, maybe you know she wouldn't be saying don't book liars in your program. But the reality is that most times when you have a liar in your program, uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And I've got to say that I'm not sure it was Caitlin Collins' fault. Uh, she, Jonathan Swan had the, uh, you know, interview one-on-one, -on -one, uh, you know, in more favorable circumstances. Soledad O'Brien yeah, did yeah. in an amphitheater with a bunch Trump, of Trump, Trump supporters, supporters, which makes yeah. it much, much harder to hold him uh, accountable. And I, I didn't see the Kristen Welker uh, interview, so I can't comment.
So if you don't book liars, Joe Biden said that babies were decapitated in Israel. He said he was at 9-11 the day after. He said his son died fighting uh, overseas. All of these are not true. In fact, lies. Then we get into the ideas. He just uh, mistaken. Is he he's just he's not saying the truth. I guess you can't book Joe Biden. Uh, well, it, there, there has to be um, you, you have to have a, a reasonable standard for this. I mean, is somebody if somebody has once told a lie, does that mean that they're a liar? You know, on every topic. Well, I just said know, three in the last lying. week you, or week you, and a half. You, you did. <laughs> he talks um, a lot. <laughs> so, the, you know, it's like when Tiger Woods plays golf and all the cameras are on him. So, yeah. you know, if he violates a rule as opposed to, you know, uh, some lesser golfer. But sorry, let, go ahead. let me let me compare it to, uh, you know. It, it depends on what happens afterward, right? It depends on whether he self-corrects, whether he owns it when somebody finds out that it's, uh, it's a mistake. Some, let me draw the analogy to uh, journalism. Uh, it's not that journalists never make mistakes. It's that there's a good journalistic value that when you make a mistake, you correct it in public, you know, draw attention to it. And so the question is, how did uh, Biden handle those lies? Does he walk it back? Does he uh, correct the record? Uh, you know, does somebody else clean it up for him? Or does he double down on the lie? I mean, I, I, I want to be careful of false equivalence here, right? Uh, Joe yeah. Biden making a mistake, you know, saying that he uh, saw a picture when he didn't or referring to a picture that didn't exist. And I, I don't know uh, which, which it, it was. But, you know, saying something that was false, and then if we can trace it back, you know, intentionally, um, it pales in comparison to, you know, what you see Trump do, and also in, you know, what you see some GOP senators do on, uh, you know, on Kristen Welker's program now and then, where they'll just, you know, come in and they've got their propaganda points and, and they'll go forward. So you're right. The the it, it, look, if the rule were never book liars on your program, they wouldn't have face the nation. They wouldn't have meet the press because it'd be crickets. Right. There was nobody that they could talk to. So you have to be prepared to challenge them. But there are certain folks, there I say Kellyanne Conway, that you you know when they're coming on the program, what they're going to do is, you know, be evasive uh, and, and lie, and maybe you shouldn't book them. One of the disqualifiers for booking liars on TV shows, as articulated in the book, uh, you have the count of election deniers. And amongst this count are all uh, over 150 representatives. There were um, a handful, eight to 11 senators, depending on the vote, who voted to decertify the election. Yet in just the last week, I, on CNN specifically, I saw Ken Buck, who voted against certifying the election, talking about his stance about having Jim Jordan be speaker, and before that, about his stance with McCarthy. I saw Nicole Maliotakis, same thing, an election denier. I saw Keith Self, who's a very committed election denier, voted to decertify and not with any wiggle room. Well, I just believe in the process. He just, he has repeatedly says he doesn't think that Donald Trump lost the election. He was called to account by Ang Boris Sanchez for saying that it's all President Biden's false. A anyway, I don't understand what the how our news media would look if they didn't book Republicans who are the vast majority of the Republican caucus to talk about what's going on with the Republican caucus. Now, if you want to ask them on as an expert on a panel discussion, was the 2020 election real? That would be a terrible booking. But how do you not book the people right in the middle of these stories, even if they have lied about something else and something important? It, it, it's a conundrum, isn't it? Because we're, I, I don't we're think now... so. I just think it's a hard choice. 
but it's well, eminently but, solvable. Well, we're we're stuck though with the fact that it seems that we're polarized around a lie that someone else told uh, Trump, and so it you know it makes it it makes it hard for the other folks uh, because you know you, they they want to be consulted on you know other matters of state other important matters and be out there and you, you I agree that not every booking should devolve into you know a threshold question about how do you feel about you know the 2020 election I, I understand that but it is it is a difficult situation because can, can you without that context what what is the what is the viewer to conclude that it's a political matter, that, that it's a matter of opinion, that, that there's no fact of the matter about whether the 2020 election was stolen. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I mean, if we just move on, look, if we treat it like a sport, if we treat it like opposing teams, then I think we've all lost um, because there's, there's political bias, but then there's also information bias, right? Is the, is the viewer better informed after they watch the program. And, and I would make the claim that they're not if it's somebody who is lying or who is, you know, expressing their opinions within the context of a, of a lie. I think they can be challenged on that. But I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I, you, you said you thought it was simple. I'd be interested to hear your solution. I think simply you have to book the people in the middle of the news and you don't give them free reign to say lies. You always have to challenge it, but you don't have a blanket uh, you don't have a blanket ban on people who are newsmakers, even if a lot of their statements you can fact check as being untrue. And it works the other way. There are plenty of statements that were seen as the truth or maybe were uttered uh, with blatant disregard for the truth that a Republican would point to and say, how do you keep booking this person? How do you keep booking Adam Schiff, given the credulity he gave to the Steele dossier, which in retrospect, we know was unwarranted? And then where do you, then where do you go? I mean, that, that's not a terrible point. Adam Schiff does have some clarifications, should he choose to make them, about things he said about the veracity of, say, the Steele dossier, not to get into a hundred other aspects of that case. Um, you, you raise a strong point. Uh, I want to, uh, and the, now let's take it down one more level. You know, how, how far can you plumb the depths of the human soul? Do you, should, are we making the claim then that Adam Schiff cynically knew that the steel doc steel dossier was fake but pushed it or that he was mistaken versus do we you know book somebody on the program who's a maga person who's an election denier who understands that the 2020 election was not stolen but says it anyway might that be the difference right whether somebody genuinely believes it or not even if they're mistaken do they genuinely believe it so one way to test that is in follow-up questions, were you mistaken? Give that person the chance. And if they stick to their guns, maybe that's a disqualifier. So my my contention with all of this is that I do think it's I do think disinformation is now weaponized. And since our society is polarized, it's having probably more of an effect than it has in human history. I look at all of the cures, some of the ones that are about, I mean, you wrote. Uh, you write very compellingly about the empathy that we should have and some techniques we should have of those that we know to be affected by disinformation. But some of the cures 
of what the news media shouldn't do to quote approvingly of this Soledad O'Brien blanket ban, I think that's much worse than disinformation itself. And I think that I don't, I think a lot of the news media is often very wrong, but in general, the way they navigate this, which is not booking repeated liars to let them lie, I don't see Jake Tapper, for instance, doing that so often, who has the highest rated show on CNN. And I suppose bad shows might do that, but I just don't see that as being the default common position. I think journalism generally, this is a very hard thing to do. I think generally is getting it more right than wrong in how they should give platforms to people who have lied in the past. I, I, I give credit to, to what you're saying. And, and maybe the, uh, the point then is, um, you know, to not to have a blanket ban on somebody, you know, who's ever told a lie, but to have a ban on, you know, people that that's their modus operandi, like the ban that you talked about with that the Jake Tapper has with Kellyanne Conway. But I still think it's important to hold people's feet to the fire. Adam Schiff as well, right? He he should be asked those questions. I mean, that you you know better than anyone, that is the, the journalist's job. And so, you know, when when folks in interviews take the easy way out, I don't think it serves the uh serves the viewers. Um, it's it's a tough job. It's hard to get it right. You know, you've got to uh, be you know, fair on so many different levels and, and people are not always going to get it right. And, and I understand that. As I said, some of my criticisms are tough love. By the way, I think that Soledad O'Brien's criticism is tough love as well. I think that she was, uh, uh, you know, feels stung and, you know, wants the media to, uh, to do better. The name of the book, really, it's, it's a long article, but it's bound, is On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. The author, Lee McIntyre, is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. He is author in the past of such books as Dark Ages, Post-Truth, The Scientific Attitude, and How to Talk to a Science Denier. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed this. And now the spiel. On Friday, we spoke about El Shifa Hospital, Israel's contention that it was being used for Hamas operations, though hospital staff and Hamas deny this. I mold if anything can ever be verified or demonstrated to be true. Since Friday, we've gotten more evidence. I don't know if it's moved the needle of believability. I don't know if that thin needle can stand up to the barrage of self-interest. So today, the fighting has moved on to another hospital, the so-called Indonesian hospital, because it was built with Indonesia. Indonesian funding, the BBC's Mohamed Tata described the fighting there this way. So the fighting now is intensified around uh, the Indonesian hospital in the north and the Kuwait um, uh, uh, school in the north uh, as well. This is uh, uh, among the, 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 the massive fighting that is happening in northern Gaza at the moment that left uh, in the last uh, um, hours, uh, more than 150 Palestinians killed, according to the Palestinian authorities, and seven uh, Israeli soldiers killed uh, as well. 
So to back up a half step, the coverage of Israel's raids of al-Shifa and hospitals in Gaza in general are two-pronged. One is to question if attacking a hospital is ever justified. We do have an answer for this, and under international law, it can be justified if a hospital is proportionally targeted to strike fighters within. But the second prong of coverage of Israel's attacks or raids on hospitals asks, was that even the case with Shifa? Was Hamas even operating in and under that hospital or hospitals in Gaza? But I ask, if they're not, who was engaged in a four-day firefight at Shifa? How did seven Israeli soldiers die in the fighting around the Indonesian hospital? Maybe the death toll is an Israeli lie. Maybe the firefight Israel said it engaged in was a ruse. It was all just a one-sided attack. How will we ever know? In the coverage of al-Shifa, you constantly heard the word, unverified or to verify. The BBC, the New York Times, NBC could not independently verify. And that's all fine to note. But I've concluded that there exists no standard of journalism or truth-telling that will ever completely satisfy the requirements of verifiable truth. But that doesn't mean I don't think there is no such thing as truth. I still think the media should operate as if there is out there some reasonable audience member open to compelling persuasion. You can assemble the facts, you could give credence or emphasis to the evidence that seems most convincing. One thing you could do, for instance, is you don't actually need a denial from Hamas officials. There is no, no center or control room for Hamas in this hospital. We avoid all the hospitals all the time. Because the words of Hamas officials aren't reliable, I know a certain kind of activist will tell you that anything the Israeli military says is similarly suspect because the Israeli military in the past has denied responsibility for acts they've been shown to be responsible for. But I'd say that's not fair. Hamas lies about the very nature of truth or fiction, whereas Israel, the U.S., Britain, Ukraine, every other military in the world does try to massage perceptions to fit the overall agenda. Let's not quibble. Back to El Shifa. Though it's impossible to convince the unconvincible, you have to try to get at the truth. You have to evaluate claims. Hamas said that they did not operate in and under al-Shifa. That's a question. Did they? Israel says Hamas stored weapons and hostages in, under, near al-Shifa. Is that true? Israel says there's a network of underground lairs. Is that true? Al-Shifa hospital officials, they've seen no sign of Hamas using their hospital as a base. Is that true? Or were hospital officials perhaps intimidated by a terrorist network? On Friday, when I last talked to you, Israel had released preliminary videos of weapons and facilities. And many in Israel skeptic media scoffed at this. Here's the popular podcast, Breaking Points. Even expectations that there would be potentially some hostages being held there. Um, So far, all we've got is a few guns that they claim they found while investigating. Okay, give it a day because then we had this development. Israeli officials say troops have recovered the body of a second woman who was taken hostage by Hamas last month. The IDF claims she was found in a building near Al-Shifa Hospital. 19-year-old Israeli Corporal Noah Marciano was laid to rest today. The IDF says she was kidnapped on October 7th. CBS News has not yet independently verified all of this information. The discovery comes a day after Israel's military announced it found the body of 65-year-old Judith Weiss within the same vicinity. Troops are continuing to search the area. 
CBS reporting. Still, maybe Israel lied about the location of the bodies. Maybe Israel lied about the adjacency of the building that contained the hostages to the hospital. Maybe it was irrelevant that they were adjacent. I can never convince a truly skeptical person that Israel will ever tell the truth. But given that all the coverage emphasized just how important it is to test Israel's claims that there was Hamas activity under the hospital, you might think that engaging in some adjudication, Hamas operating in hospitals, yes or no, you'd think that would be terribly important. You'd hope that could, in fact, be possible. It's essential that we know this. Of course, we could never know this, and we will never believe it, no matter what evidence is presented. It seems like a trap. Again, Israel's claims in the matter of hospitals was seen as a referendum. That's the word I use Friday. It's presented as a referendum for Israel's believability. Yet, as more and more evidence comes out, I see signs that this referendum is getting less and less important as a way to evaluate Israel's believability. I think as there's more evidence that adds up to, oh, maybe there was something to what Israel was saying, we've moved away from, eh, it's not important to really evaluate. Today, Israel brought a drone down a hatch that they discovered on the grounds of the hospital. The drone followed a staircase through a tunnel and then came to a blast door. They didn't go inside because it could be booby-trapped. I'm sure someday they will. I could think of no medical reason for the tunnel, but I'm sure someone will come up with some story. Israel officials showed caches of grenades and weapons and if you need the Hamas official calling that into question, the BBC did oblige. Senior Hamas leaders rejected Israel's claim to have found weapons and evidence of a command center at the hospital. Maybe everything was planted. Maybe they were AI generated. Maybe they were not actual weapons. The idea of Hamas operating under al-Shifa was dismissed on the Al Jazeera podcast, The Take. Of course, if you have that many people in Shifa hospital, I'd, I'm sort of suspicious because with so many people, someone uh, would have snapped a photo if there was something. Right. Someone would have come up to witnesses saying, oh, yes, you see, we are trying to run a hospital here. And the bad guys from Hamas, they're running a control center underneath. We haven't seen that. Yes. And you've actually had doctors and members of the Red Cross saying we haven't seen any of this stuff. Today, the Israel Defense Forces released video from inside al-Shifa on October 7th that goes exactly to that point. Surely someone would have noticed the Red Cross and doctors say they saw nothing. I'll read from the the at IDF Twitter feed. Breaking. The at IDF released CCTV footage from the Shifa hospital with an October 7th timestamp documenting Hamas terrorists forcibly transporting hostages, a Nepalese civilian and a Thai civilian through the hospital. These findings prove that Hamas terrorist organization used the Shifa hospital complex on the day of the massacre as terrorist infrastructure. Many people commented saying, so what? Hamas brought a wounded person to the hospital. That's humanitarian. Well, one of those men was bloody and wounded and wheeled on a stretcher. The other just seemed to be dragged along by his captors. But either way, it certainly does at least partially rebut the idea that no staff ever saw signs of Hamas in the hospital. Now, you may have heard the following assertion that I'm going to play from Dr. Hamam Alo, a very brave Palestinian doctor who last week was killed by an airstrike at his home. He was widely quoted as he continued to treat patients at Al-Shifa. 
He was one of the voices who said he never saw Hamas activity in the hospital. Israel, the military, uh, the government, uh, says that Al-Shifa, your hospital, is Hamas, uh, the site of Hamas uh, command and control. Can you respond to that, Dr. Allo? I've been working this hospital for over two years, and I never saw this. So um, I'm I'm no lawyer, I'm no attorney, but um, this is how I'm simply replying. I never saw this for over two years. If this is true, I would see at least a clue. You would have seen. But today on the English language broadcaster France 24, a doctor who worked in the hospital a few years ago says he was warned away from certain areas. The doctor was anonymous, but the network confirmed that he was an actual doctor who they knew to have actually worked at Al-Shifa Hospital. The main point was when I was first asked to work there, I was told there was a part of the hospital I was not to go near. And if I did, I'd be in danger of being shot. Shot? You mean actually shot with a gun? Yes, Was it explained to you why that was? No, but implicit was that it was being used for non-medical purposes. And did you see anything non-medical or did you obey the instructions and stay away? I stayed away, but I saw a few sort of dodgy looking non-medical characters going in and out all the time. It was a ward leading to a basement. As I say, I didn't go there, so uh, I behaved myself. They would say there could be many other reasons that you would be told not to go to a particular area of a hospital. It's not unusual. Well, I was, I was welcome everywhere else. And as I say, the doctors and nurses there were very welcoming and very kind. And the hushed tones under which this was said was consistent with all the other hushed tones about which Hamas was discussed. You know, people were fe- genuinely fearful. This is all unverified. All of this could be honest testimony, could be flat-out lies, could be mistaken impressions, could be a coordinated disinformation campaign. But it's all evidence. And there's more evidence today than there was yesterday, than there was Friday. And I'm going to say there will be more evidence tomorrow supporting the claims that Shifa and other hospitals in Gaza are being used as bases for Hamas operations. And I just wonder if that will ever be acknowledged, if it'll be ignored, Or I think maybe most likely if it'll be barely absorbed and simply moved on from. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, solo today. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is CLFAO of Peachfish Productions and assisting Michelle For all these years, inspiring us all is our dear, beloved cat, Oliver, who sadly succumbed to a heart ailment. We are now catless at Peachfish Productions, and it is a huge, huge hole in all of our hearts. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Boom, peru, 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 and thanks for listening.